This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Ease versus Mastery. T.E. Lawrence and Robert Graves. The progression of SF illustration. And a Theosophist retirement community. Robin, what's better than dinosaurs? Hmm, I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting, Plain Gia, is on Kickstarter now from Atlas Games. Wait, didn't they make Niambi and Northern Crown too? Yes, for third edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's going to be excellent. Tell me more. Plangea is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs. Live on Kickstarter until October. October 7th. Search for Plain Gia. That's plain as an airplane, then G-E-A. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, we, we look around and we ask, are those, are those Doritos Cool Ranch or are they Nacho? And we ask, are those miniatures, are they lead or are they pewter? And, uh, we ask, are those dice polyhedrals or regular hedrals? Robin, we've got a lot of axing going on and it's not just about alternate pronunciations of beloved verbs. It's also about the axes of game design. And if you think it was easy to come up with one of those that was not about more axes, well, (laughs) you think things are easier than they are. But today, by an odd coincidence, we're also talking about ease, which in this case is the slider along the axis, ease versus mastery. And this is different from last time's handling cost, which is about the uh, ease of using the rule and the payoff from using the rule. This, if I understand you and the Lord knows that I do not always. This is just about the ease of learning the rules versus the joy of mastering the rules. Is that right. uh, fair enough? Yes. And this is, so this is a player facing metric. So it's, uh, do players find your rule system uh, very easy to use? Can they pick it up, jump in, start playing with minimal effort? Or are they rewarded for acquiring mastery? Uh, And that reward is not only, but includes just the feeling of knowing a big, complicated thing and being able to use it. Uh, That appeals to some brains more than others. And it also, though, extends to your relative advantage against other players. So that if you have acquired rules mastery, you have a cooler character that you put together with your build system. You know the right spells to take and for a bang for your buck at whatever uh, level character you are, he says, picking a rule system that is uh, linked very much to mastery, mm-hmm. you can do more as a third level bard 
than the less attentive player can do as a third-level combat machine. So that naturally is something that, that is not a right answer, because uh, this is very much in the realm of different people like different things. Some folks, particularly when they're young gamers, very young gamers with nothing much else to do, enjoy memorizing a monster manual or learning all the optimal uh, ways of building a champion's character. But other people just want to show up and play and have a good time, be told when to roll the dice. And uh, you, the designer, have to kind of decide who are you shooting at? Are you looking for the full mastery experience? and uh, Or are you looking for something that's you know, relatively easy to grab and doesn't require a lot of homework. And sometimes the other constraints drive that. So, for example, if you know that you're doing a one-off game that stands alone, will never have any supplements, will never have any source books, your choice of what to do with it is broader because you don't have a institutional imperative to keep adding stuff, and therefore you don't have an institutional imperative that weights you toward mastery. Whereas if you're either doing a game that is a tie into another already mastery rich game, or you are doing a, uh, a game that you feel needs intricacy in order for the feel of the game to work. And that might be, uh, something in which you have a very complex and intricate magic system, because the point you're making is that the world of magic is intricate and complex. And so, uh, you have a aesthetic reason or a, or a meta reason to design your game tending toward mastery, or maybe you are doing a game where you feel like no magic is as simple as a thunderclap. And so you have an institutional reason to drive it the other way. So unlike some of the other sliders, some of this is going to be driven by either commercial ends or by your sort of conceptual end, because as you say, different players like different things. So it's not like, well, nobody likes a mastery rich game or nobody likes a simple accessible game. So Either direction you, you swing, it's it's a justifiable direction because there are indeed people who want to play either of those sorts of things, right? Yeah, it's it's about knowing what you're shooting for. Uh, chances are your decision of where to be along that spectrum uh, may very well reflect your own tastes as a, a, a gamer, and that will reflect your tastes as a game designer. And you can look at Dungeons & Dragons in particular and see different approaches over the years to how much mastery is required to play that game, even though I would argue compared to, you know, say, obviously, Hill Folk, it, they're all high mastery games. Yeah, uh, They've all got lots of crunchy bits, and, and in, there's not a single version of that where spending a lot of time reading the monster manual is not going to help your character prevail uh, when you're actually playing play sessions. Uh, or, you know, as as I remember from being a young GM, uh, secretly buying the DM's guide and pretending to roll really well on the uh, phone session that you're having about your treasure, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's mastery right that there happens. of a different sort. Yep. But, so for example, third edition, mastery was part of the design goal. It was, we want to reward players who are uh, really into this, and so we're going to include some crappy feats. And the players who aren't smart enough to read the rules and see that those feats aren't, aren't there they're going to be kind of cheated. And that kind of uh, was some leakage, I think, at, at Watsi at the time from the Magic the Gathering uh, side of the aisle, uh, where, of course, in a competitive, complicated game like uh, Magic the Gathering, uh, mastery is everything. Uh, and that's often mastery in the deck building rather than mastery in playing. If you ma- have a 
good enough deck, you just sort of play it by rote. Whereas the current edition of D&D, a conscious decision was made to scale that way back and make it much more accessible to the newer casual player who could just sort of jump in. And there are character types that are perfectly playable with very little homework. Mm -hmm. And that is a decision uh, in in that case, in both cases, it is made by a uh, committee of people at a big corporation. Uh, but you yourself, as a uh, as a designer, uh, need to ask yourself, how much time can I expect players of this game to invest in everybody reading the rules and acquiring uh, mastery over them? And the issue there, of course, is that the people who really like heavy mastery games, like now Pathfinder or you know, again, champions or GURPS to not as quite a degree as champions. Yeah, to a lesser degree, degree than champions, I think, but still yeah. it's in there. It's in the mix. Right. But the high mastery niche is kind of uh, occupied by people who've already spent hours and hours developing mastery. So you've got to ask yourself, how am I going to grab enough of those people? And as the age range of players widens, we now have lots of young players and we have lots of people who've been playing for uh, years and years, the older players, do they have time to acquire mastery, let alone the interest uh, in doing so? And then not orthogonal precisely, but in the mix is uh, the innovation. I don't want to say it's an innovation, but the, well, let's call it an innovation. The innovation of uh, the setting as mastery, which I think was to an extent pioneered by D&D as they began to introduce more and more character classes expanding their implied setting and then became absolutely the case with uh vampire the masquerade as they expanded just the pure fiction of their setting because the game was so heavily involved with manipulating the setting less so the rules that the same time commitments the same reading commitments the same oh you don't want to be that clan you want to be this sub bloodline of this other clan following x path are true mechanically but they're also true in a story sense because there is a uh, putatively one single world of darkness and in that vampire society all the rules have already been set and you can figure out oh i know from reading the novel that this city is in chaos. I can do a thing here. Oh, I know because I'm reading a novel or I've read a splat book that this city's uh, sewers are full of uh, not Nosferatu, but were uh, rats. And so I have to, you know, trip lightly there. And that information becomes part of the mastery because to a degree, I think certainly to agree, never seen before vampire very rapidly, uh, leaned into that as the selling point of, uh, the fiction and the game for, you know, heavy users, less so, uh, monkeying with the rules. Although as I implied paths and things like that began to show up that are the basic equivalents of, Oh, you don't have the advanced spellcasters handbook. Sorry. Uh, you're not advanced anymore. Right. I think you're absolutely correct that we think of system mastery, but there are other kinds of masteries. There are, as you say, there are setting mastery. And one could posit, uh, you know, a game that doesn't exist yet where, you know, you could have cartographic mastery where knowing uh, what is on the map and and uh, or having uh, the ability to draw more of the map gives you either a sense of uh, relative accomplishment compared to the other players or just 
payoff for learning, right? So mm-hmm. in your example of what's in the sewers, in that game, another player who hasn't bothered to read that book could just ask the GM, so uh, so what's in the sewers? And the GM would go, werewolves. Whereas if you have read the book and you go, there's I've uh, heard rumors that there's werewolves in the sewer, the end result in the narrative is exactly the same. But the emotional impact of you being able to bring this factor into the table, you knowing a thing that uh, your lazy bones, other players have not bothered to learn, uh, again, gives you that uh, that payoff for learning. So I've said the word learning a bunch of times. So I think this is where we nest the uh, learning curve part of uh, the axis. Um, it's not the only thing that's going on here, but you always have a high learning curve when you have a high mastery. And uh, whether that is about learning the core rules and then the zillion bits of additional crunchy bits that fold into that or learning a whole bunch of different subsystems. More mastery means more to learn because you're being rewarded for learning. Whereas something that is very easy requires very little homework. You don't have to memorize a bunch of stuff. You just have to show up. The GM tells you what's going on. Uh, You have a simple character sheet and boom, you're ready to go. And that is also can be an external commercial consideration. Often, the thought was in the past the way to create the ideal entry-level role-playing game was to do something very easy, very simple, like the Prince Valiant game. But what keeps turning out to be the thing is that the main way to get people into role-playing is D&D. Is to play D&D, yeah. Which has lots of mastery and lots of complexity. And uh, there's just another way into that now, which is you can now uh, watch, you know, essentially videoed radio dramas of... Uh, your favorite D&D players playing your favorite D&D, and you can acquire uh, mastery uh, through that avenue. And uh, you're also acquiring your mastery of knowledge over uh, the episodes of a, an actual play series that you're really super into. Uh, because, of course, people enjoy mastery curves uh, outside of role-playing. If you're <laughs> someone who loves knowing stuff about Star Trek, uh, that gives you a uh, an advantage over the mere mortals sitting around you in the room or, you know, uh, if you've read all the comics, you know to be extra excited by things that pop up in the latest Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe movie. And so there's all sorts of examples of learning, paying off, and feeling advantage, and it appeals to a particular uh, subset of the population. But among those it appeals to, it appeals to them hard. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, if you can sync that, uh, you know, not to get all 70s educational TV, but to the degree you can equate uh, learning with uh, a dopamine reward with fun, as we used to call it, then that is a win, I think, for, you know, it, it just in terms of being able to achieve mastery over all manner of different things, uh, whether it be, you know, cooking or car repair or whatever else, because that's just a good habit to get into, assuming you want to do anything besides what you're being told to do by your immediate superior in life be they your boss or your uh, parents or your cat or whoever, right? The more ability you have to open yourself up to this, generally, I feel, the more options you at least have, even if what you decide is, nope, don't want it, just want easy stuff, that's an informed choice, right? And I think that the the interesting, the interesting thing about the other end of this curve, because we've talked a lot about the high learning curve, is low learning curves... I think overlap with and are often co-presented with ease of play that we talked about last time, but are not necessarily the same thing. I mean, you could have, in theory, a learning curve in which 
the answer is look it up on a table. That's always annoying. And if the table is big enough, it's hard to memorize and gain mastery over. And even if you do, it's the mastery more comes just from iterative play. Uh, and I'm thinking of even in this case, war games where you, once you've learned the combat results table, it's like, well, is a two to one attack a bad idea? Does it have to be three to one? Does it need to be four to one? Where the, where's the sweet breaking spot in the probability? And while that is never going to be the ease of play for our old slider, it's maybe a short, you know, like that, that one step up, but then you never have to take another step. So, uh, you can imagine a uh, system that provides an immediate steep learning curve, but then never adds anything. And that I think on our metric, you know, equates out to an easy system that is perhaps broader, but easier across every line. Or is that getting too fiddly and down into the uh, individual subsystem? Well, I I think it's just something that's not going to come up very much, right? You're not going to have a lot of games that have essentially no learning curve, but a high handling cost. Mm -hmm. That's possible. I, I guess having quick shot cards, that might be an example. So those tend to go together, but they're they're not the same. And before we close out, I just want to mention, of course, that unlike a lot of edges of the different axes we're looking at, mastery has a dark side, which is the the gatekeeperism mm-hmm. that you sometimes see. I remember, you know, seeing somebody who's really into D and D tell someone, and spoiler, it was a girl that <laughs> you have to learn all of these books in order to play, and then you have to learn. 10,000 words of rule book in order to play this game, meaning get away from me, you person who frightens me. Um, and so uh, sometimes that level of knowledge, and especially back in the day, would be used to to keep the normies out. But uh, at this point, I think the normies have, have come pretty conclusively over the wall, or at least all transformed into nerds as well. I mean, the gatekeeping, like the poor, we shall always have with us, I think. But the goal, I believe is uh, if you are a high mastery sort of person to not be, and and let's uh, put it in board games briefly, the guy playing pandemic who moves everyone else's pawns for them. Right. And that's not even gatekeeping. It's, it's just preventing fun at the table. They don't, they're not mad that their, you know, sister-in-law is playing pandemic. They just hate seeing them make suboptimal choices with the pawn because, Oh no, you're going to cover Africa with, um, uh, bird flu or whatever right however if if before the session you want to be the guy who optimizes everybody else's champions characters <laughs> you yes. may indeed be welcome then, then you are doing a mitzvah and um uh, your reward is in heaven yeah so i think once we have begun to leave game design and moved into best play practices we have perhaps uh begun to set a delicate foot outside the gaming hut and into a commercial Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that 
that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. It's time once more to ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, beloved Patreon backer Joe Webb asks Ken and Robin, T.E. Lawrence, Erebus, diplomat, warrior, Robert Graves, poet, classicist, prince among scholars. Together they fight crime. What does that look like? And I would like to uh, additionally beloved uh, Joe Webb for giving us the quick one-shot introductions to both of these people, mm-hmm. who Ken, you will now expand and expound upon and talk about their real-life friendship before we turn that into made-up adventures. Right. I, I think of the two of them, most more people know T.E. Lawrence because he's had a masterpiece movie made out of him and because he seems more exciting. And indeed, I think in the straight-up definition of exciting, he, his life was more exciting. Even his World War I was more exciting because he got to be in the War of Maneuver out in Arabia, whereas poor Robert Graves, not poor, but more regular Robert Graves, got to be on the Somme on the Western Front, and was very badly wounded, uh, invalided out. He had already gotten his uh, position at Oxford in 1914. Instead of taking it, he volunteered, went to the front. Both Graves and Lawrence ended the war as captains, which I think is a lovely piece of uh, coincidence. Uh, Lawrence first met Philip Percival Graves, uh, Robert Graves' much older brother, because Philip Percival Graves was also a renowned Orientalist, as it was called without sneering uh, quotes uh, back in the day, uh, an expert on the uh, Levant and the uh, cultures and languages of the East. He was then, during the war, brought back in, put in army intelligence in Cairo, and Philip Percival Graves and Lawrence, who at that point was working for the Royal Geographic Survey in Cairo, joined the Arab Bureau, which was sort of a think tank in charge of figuring out what was going on in the Turks' Arab possessions. And they produced, all of the these bureaus produced endless little handbooks based on classified intelligence that they would then distribute to commanders in the area. And they produced something called the Handbook on the Turkish Army, which had the order of battle, their general um, uh, doctrine, uh, tactics you might expect, you know, how good they were in various other fights, after action analyses, that kind of thing. That goes out to the British in 19... 19- 16, uh, late 1916, and that's a Graves-Lawrence collaboration. Uh, then, after the war is over, Graves is finally taking his degree at St. John's in Oxford, and Lawrence is sort of on his uh, back heels. A captain's half pay, or whatever he was on, did not go very far, and uh, people thought, well, he was uh, a hero. And they set him up a research fellowship at Oxford at the College of All Souls, basically to pay his, you know, living expenses 
while he wrote what they thought would be a war memoir and turned into The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, a work of a weird initiatic philosophical mysticism uh, disguised as a war memoir. Quite a piece of work in, in many regards. Well, if you want people to read mysticism, uh, disguising as a book by a war hero is a pretty good way to do it. Well, it, it, it worked pretty well, although Lawrence fought tooth and nail to keep anyone from reading it, including his new buddy, Robert Graves. They met at a dinner in October of 1919. They remained uh, friends in Oxford throughout the year 1920. By 1921, uh, Lawrence is getting antsy. Winston Churchill dragoons him back into the uh, colonial office and puts him in charge in uh, Transjordan. So he's he's out of Oxford uh, by 1921. But in that period, he does uh, Robert Graves a number of solids. For example, he loans him enough money to eat. And then he gives him one of the very, very limited edition copies. There were like seven copies of uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom that were published. And he gives Graves one of them to read and then to sell. And he writes in the letter to him, he says, make sure you sell it. It should bring 3,000 pounds. And indeed it did. And that's basically what Robert Graves lived on. And the reason that Lawrence so this was, was basically the, the single Wu-Tang album of its of its day. Exactly. It was uh, it was uh, an NFT in that it was a uh, non-front travelogue at the time. And uh, that was a terrible, terrible uh, forced acronym. I apologize in advance to everyone. The other reason that Lawrence uh, became friends with Graves is that Lawrence admired Graves as a poet. Graves had begun as a war poet, wrote his experiences in uh, the Somme and in the trenches into poetry, then wrote more of it while convalescing. He was friends with uh, Siegfried Sassoon. He knew Wilfred Owen. His landlord at Oxford was the poet laureate, so he was wired into the poetic infrastructure in Britain. And Lawrence admired poets. He thought that uh, poets uh, touched a higher faculty than he, a mere uh, insecure mystic, did. And he, I mean, he, he got rid of that notion, but it was much later in his life. But that's basically why he and Graves got along so well. And they were good buddies. Uh, in 1927, Lawrence's publisher said, could we maybe have a book we could actually sell? And he Less says, mystical, well, perhaps. Yeah, or, or one that is in a bigger print run than 25 copies. There was an excerpt from it, Revolt in the Desert, that also sold very well. And he said, well, um, uh, I don't want to write my autobiography, but I'll tell you what, have Robert Graves write my biography. He and I are really good friends, and he's a great writer. And the publishers were like, uh, who? And they looked him up and said, I got, all right, he's at Oxford. He must be good. Graves agreed. Uh, he didn't know at the time that Lawrence had asked him to do it, or asked for him. And he said, I'll only do it if Lawrence agrees. So... That was ironed out rapidly. And he writes in 1927 on a very tight deadline, uh, Lawrence and the Arabs, which is the first biography of Lawrence. And it obviously there's a giant public appetite for information about Lawrence of Arabia. And it becomes a, a bestseller, not, not like a global, you know, dominating bestseller, but a uh, pay Robert Graves's rent for the next, you know, 10, 15 years type of bestseller. And so, that is sort of a, a big favor that uh, that Lawrence does for Graves then in 1927. Uh, by 1927, Lawrence has quixotically re-enlisted in first the RAF under an assumed name that he's bounced uh, out of that. He re-enlists in the Tank Corps, uh, hates being in the Tank Corps, and gets uh, political pressure to put him back in the RAF. RAF uh, and then he's deployed out to Pakistan, modern Pakistan, then British India, and 
is sent way onto the frontier so he can't, you know, embarrass anyone with his hijinks. And then by the time he comes back to Britain, he's basically in the Navy and helping to design uh, inshore boats for the Navy and has by then decided that poets are just craftsmen, that everyone's just a craftsman. You know, you're a boat builder, you're a poet, you're a, a maneuver warfare specialist. It's all crafts. There is no art. And that, of course, gets up Robert Graves' nose. And so their last letters are kind of, they're pricklier than their original letters. They last meet briefly in September of 1930 when Lawrence has leave, comes up and visits Graves. They hang out. And then, of course, Lawrence dies in the famous uh, motorcycle accident in 1935. Graves lives another 50 years and becomes a doyen, a dean, not only of poetry, but of historical novel writing and of his own version of mysticism, which is, of course, about sex and poetry, but disguised as nonsense about Celtic myth. And uh, right. he's learned from Lawrence to disguise your and, mysticism. And that's his, his triple goddess uh, sort of uh, alternate mythology. Yes. Yes. And which grow, grows out of his understanding of, of Fraser. And I'm not saying that Fraser was correct. I'm saying that Graves had an even more idiosyncratic understanding of Fraser than most Fraserians did. James George Fraser, who famously uh, believed that all religions are some form of the rising and dying corn king, uh, who is human sacrificed uh, at the end of his reign. Yeah, so I had a professor who recommended Graves' two-volume ology, which is basically like a, a lexicon. It's, a, it's great. Don't trust any of it. Yes, The Greek Myths by Robert Graves is one of the great uh, setting books for something, uh, in that it is a Fraserian underpinning of Greek myth. There are footnotes out the wazoo, but one of the great things that reading Graves on the Greek myths will do for you, because Graves, his theoretical framework depends on there being different versions of the myth, the older ones revealing more of the truth, in the course of the book, will tell you, here are the different versions of the myth, and then he'll footnote them to the various classical authorities, which is a much, you know, it's, it's sort of a supernova if you came to it from the Dolares or Bullfinch, and there's only one story of Pegasus. We know about Pegasus. And then Graves is there to say, well, actually, Pegasus got a lot of origin stories. We don't know what happened to Pegasus at the end. Here's some different versions. But it's all because Pegasus is the sacred partridge or some nonsense. And so <laughs> Graves will simultaneously be wonderful for you if you're reading mythology and terrible for you if you're reading mythology. So it's you know, in many ways, it's just like uh, the White Goddess. It's just like his Roman novels. You know, Graves is so smart and good at writing that uh, you make the very real error of believing any of his codswallop, and that gets you in trouble, of course. So, speaking of trouble, our mission here is to get Lawrence and Graves into trouble and have them have uh, buddy adventures together. So, our window for that is from when they first uh, meet up in 1919 to, I guess, Lawrence is going uh, back into the army in, uh, in when, 20? It's when he goes back into the Colonial Bureau in 21 is when 21. they're no longer hanging out in Oxford. Now, right. there is one weird little element in their biographies. There's actually a couple of weird little elements in their biographies. At one point in 1923, Graves writes that a certain Eastern potentate which probably means either an Indian prince or uh, one of the Rajas in Malaysia requested that Graves come out and basically run the university out there. 
and that the, the government would pay for everything. And Graves wrote to Lawrence and said, should I take that job? They, I think, want me because I know you. And Lawrence thought about it and said, I'm not going to go out there. I'm sick of doing government work. This is right after he gets back from Winston Churchill, telling him to ruin the Middle East forever. And so they don't officially go out in 1923. And then in 1926, Graves spends a year teaching at the University of Cairo, teaching literature and hating it. But again, this is while Lawrence is in the RAF again. And in theory, when you're going from Britain to India, you go through Egypt. So there is a window for them to have adventures that never made the history books in 1926 while Graves is in Egypt. And then there's that weird question mark of 1923 when someone very badly wants Robert Graves and T.E. Lawrence to come help them with something. And that someone is a mysterious Eastern potentate. So I feel like we've got sort of a three-part structure. We have the Graves and Lawrence, as you say, in Oxford, learning uh, magic and myth together, probably Graves deciphering the the alphabet of the trees that he later uses as the uh, bedrock of his magic in uh, The White Goddess, and that that uncovers something and he turns to the the greatest warrior he knows, T. Lawrence, and they, as uh, Joe Webb suggests, they fight crime, and in this case, the crime of being a monster, and then something happens in 1923 where they have to uh, maybe have to go to the other side of the world secretly and, and fix it. And then in 1926, they have their sort of um, uh, Indiana Jones and the last crusade moment in Egypt. And when they, whatever they, they thought was done in 1923 really gets done, or maybe it doesn't. And the monster then uh, kills Lawrence in the seeming motorbike accident. And that happened in, in England again. So uh, yeah. the whole thing of they're having a falling out could also have been a, a ruse to throw the monsters off their trails. So uh, is there a particular monstrous antagonist or antagonist that you think they would be uh, pursuing? Well, I mean, I, the, given that we are dealing with uh, a poet and T.E. Lawrence, I believe that I am constitutionally unable to suggest anything except uh, gin, that it being uh, a tie-in to Tim Powers' novel Declare, in which Lawrence did in fact understand the beginning of the occult warfare in the Middle East and probably died as a result of it. And so if you wanted to have the, the alphabet of the trees be either graves attempting to find a, the opposite of gin magic in a druid magic that involves uh, living, growing green things as his anti gin device, or perhaps that uh, much as the gin are what happens to these extraterrestrials when they land in Arabia, maybe when they land in Wales, they turn into some si sort of a very, very deadly fairy. And so you have, you know, the Swag, the, the host of the, of the dead fairies, uh, that they're fighting in Britain. And then they recognize, and Lawrence is like, Oh, I've seen this before, uh, in Arabia. These are just a local, uh, field formation of the djinn. And it's investigating that that takes them to the east. And uh, in Egypt in 26, I think that'd be fun. So you get your two players who are your most reliable attendees to be mm -hmm. Graves and Lawrence. And do we have the rest of the party uh, fleshed out by uh, fictional characters who just happen to have the abilities that they lack? Or are there uh, other potential historical figures who could be along for the ride? Well, I mean, it's, it's Oxford in 1919 and 1920. So I think about two thirds of the British intellectual infrastructure is potentially there 
Uh, it's still, I mean, for, for goodness sake, you've got Lord Peter Whimsey and Sherlock Holmes are both canonically alive, uh, in this period. Uh, Holmes, maybe a little less canonically, but you could have, you know, any of the great detectives from the, the golden age of, of detective fiction could, could be on your side there. And then I would probably be very tempted to say to my players, at least, um, you may play anyone who is demonstrably at Oxford. Uh, between October 1919 and uh, March of 1921 and uh, go ahead and then turn them loose. They'd find a million more insane things than I thought. Uh, you could uh, maybe, if you wanted to, um, have them fight Aleister Crowley, who is uh, contemporaneous. I think maybe making him the main villain is a little uh, hard to justify just geographically. He's um, coming back from America in 1919. Um, but and, he is and too big a compliment to him. And it, it is. But I, I think that making him sort of, you know, show up as the Riddler or the toy man on the way to fight the real uh, villains would be fun that he sort of thinks he knows all about the, the gin or the slog. And in fact, knows just enough to be a minor threat. And then Graves and Lawrence easily, you know, shut off his uh, key flows or whatever and leave him the stunted little heroin addict that he that he was for the rest of his life. Well, I think uh, we've uh, laid out exactly how that campaign would go and therefore can uh, see uh, what other exciting uh, adventures and or huts and or structures await for us on the other side of this commercial. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep us in the good graces of the Triple Goddess by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Ryan Mannix! Scott Jones! Trunk Boy! Jane McDowell! And Robert Wolf! The delicate threnodies of the string quartets, the murmuring caterers passing among us with elegant hors d'oeuvres, the... Perfect indirect lighting on the walls welcome us into that classiest of huts, the culture hut. And we are immediately going to walk through that elevated party and go down into the basement and start tearing science fiction paperbacks off the shelves because we are a horde of ill-bred monsters, Robin. And uh, specifically, though, we are talking about the art of science fiction illustration. And I think that, well, let's talk about pictures on the radio, Robin, that... That has never gone badly. Right. Your your thesis 
uh, I guess. If do, do I want to give that away, or do we want to have you Mark Cousins well, us uh, through? What the- I want to do is just sort of take a look through the history of science fiction and I guess also horror illustration uh, because those cross over once you get to Lovecraft Mm -hmm. uh, and weird tales and look at how the cultural trends in art have been reflected or not reflected in them over the years. And so that the broad overview is that uh, they go from being very influenced by and in parallel to the, the high art tradition, the museum art tradition, but a disjuncture happens say in the mid seventies and things uh, change after that. And they pretty clearly diverge. And so when you're talking about the thirties, those of us listening to this podcast, I think when they are thinking of art, will be thinking of the covers to pulp magazines later on, that turns into the covers of uh, paperbacks. And then now we live in an era where actually it's gaming. That is the great uh, source of uh, the market for uh, illustration and not just role-playing gaming, although uh, we uh, commission a lot of art, but also video games. And so there's so much more visual material to go with any literary work than there was uh, back in the original day. Uh, But uh, we're starting, I guess, with uh, the Weird Tales artist, so Margaret Brundage, who is sort of the the archetypical, most prolific of the uh, illustrators, and also the one whose art most often upset the censors, and that is because her very scantily clad uh, damsels in distress were informed by the symbolist movement, and uh, so were uh, the works of uh, other artists like John Arfstrom and Hannes Bach, who also, I think, went on to do stuff for uh, Arkham House. So you can see, looking at their stuff, that they are being fed, not by the most immediate art movement, but the most relevant to what they're doing. The uh, So the, the symbolists, who, of course, are operating in the Belle Epoque era, and they're uh, very much part of the whole vibe of uh, the Yellow King Paris segment, are uh, looking at uh, myth. Uh, there's also a lot of uh, lurid, sometimes very uh, lurid sexuality, and they're uh, starting to sort of break down from the illustrational style of the, uh, the academic painters who are informed by the old masters and move into their own kind of stylized area that's even more stylized than the Impressionists. And although the stylization is not quite as great necessarily as some of the symbolists, like then once we go to Virgil Findlay and Lee Brown Coy, uh, we're looking at uh, people who are influenced not only by that, but also by the Surrealist movement in the 30s. So you can look at uh, the way uh, that their uh, illustrations portray, in Coy's case, the works of Lovecraft and Findlay, both Lovecraft and uh, science fiction and see something that is quite wild and trippy and prefigures the psychedelic movement to the same degree that surrealism uh, prefigures uh, the psychedelic. So, Ken, what do you think of uh, when you think about the art of the cover art from that period? I mean, for me, uh, and this is basically just how I was raised, but I think I come back to it over and over. I think of the art that is not necessarily coming as much out of the fine arts tradition as it is out of architectural renderings, out of commercial art, and out of poster art, uh, sort of propaganda and uh, commer- and sales art. And that is the sort of Frank Paul Chesley Bonestell school of strong illustration, great color sense. And, I mean, Paul obviously is more nuts and bolts than Bonestell. Bonestell, I think, has got just touches of Impressionism, although he remains more of a, a realist. 
And I feel like that side of it, the amazing, astounding, Gernsbacky via Campbell hard SF side of it has always privileged is maybe not the word, but reflexively turned to illustration uh, as opposed to conceptual art. And that those magazine covers are specifically, you know, I don't want to say in opposition because obviously Gernsback had tons of ladies tied up by aliens, but they are, I mean, first of all, uh, they could pay better. So the art is better. Uh, God bless Margaret Brundage, but on her best day, she's not Frank Paul. And, and so therefore the, the, the level of quality, uh, just objective, you know, you know, the quality of the paper, the quality of the color printing, the quality of the process is better in that art, which again leads you. And this is my overarching argument that the only place Marxist criticism is correct is in the arts in that it all comes out of technical factors and, uh, you know, the, the money, <laughs> the, the industrial processes available. And so that also, because you have those processes available, that feeds the more illustrative, uh, Frank Paul Bonestell school and that your Hannes box and your Lee Brown coys, especially they almost never made the cover, right? Bach and Coy were very, very often the interior artists where you've got a cheap print you have to have strong blacks, strong whites. You have to have geometric form uh, becomes more important. And uh, that is rewarded by their art in a way that, you know, if you took a Frank Paul painting and you tried to print that in black and white in the inside of a pulp, it would look like garbage. And so in the insides of Astounding, uh, they would use sort of like a linotype looking art that, you know, or it's, not it's quite much more really gravier, but it's but it's very later. graphic designy and very. Um, sort of, you know, profiles of, of, uh, jut jawed people looking up, lots of that. So, uh, sort of a socialist realist quality, which again is because Soviet physical plant was terrible. So their art had to be blocky and ugly. And that's just the way the world was. And I think that we see that tension happening that is driven by the form. And I think it even moves us into the paperback era when the budgets and the ability to print images on the covers of paperbacks were both very low. And so you start seeing, you know, sort of like, and, and I have tons of these Graf Conklin and other anthologies from the era that are just sort of, well, we're going to put a blue circle on a red square on a black background and say, that looks like space. Boom. Problem solved. Right. And you have almost a sort of, you know, der Stiel, even not even abstract expressionist uh, level of abstraction on the covers of a lot of science fiction paperbacks in the fifties and even into the early sixties. Right. But you also are seeing a conscious influence from abstract expressionism. And once you get into the sixties, there are a lot of covers that are very uh, trippy and uh, uh, almost sort of uh, work against the actual contents of, you know, often there's very pre psychedelia imagery on the uh, covers of hard SF narratives as well as planetary adventures where they fit a lot. But you see a lot of influence leaking through, through from fifties uh, galleries into fifties SF covers. Mm -hmm. And as you suggest, there's sort of two streams. There's the traditional, more uh, classical illustrative uh, nuts and bolts, uh, classical figures. Uh, and so uh, artists like Ed Valigursky and Ed Emschwiller, or, who often sign himself Emsch, have those hard lines that I think a lot of uh, science fiction fans, uh, they love hard lines with their hard SF, but also the content of the covers is still very 
trippy and strange often. So the Emschwiller covers often have sort of a, almost a Rod Serling Twilight Zone yeah. uh, limits sort of thing uh, happening with them. And I think a lot of a lot of you see that same sort of thing on the covers of the Men's Adventure Sweats magazines because the you immediately think oh it's the Nazis or the crocodiles or whatever, but the overwhelming image of those covers and I think a lot of the covers you're talking about are generally a man and he's generally in terror. And it's that, you know, not quite Munch's the scream level of, you know, ongoing iconography, but it is that sort of psychologically influenced, do we want to say even, level of of uh of art and of illustration that I think happens a lot and I think that the sort of the notion that this isn't real, quote unquote, that it's all happening in someone's head, maybe gives uh, people like M. Schwiller a bit of, of permission to explore that sort of trippy quality because uh, the, those planets just look ridiculous. They don't look like Chesley bone style planets. They're all bloated and purple and they have craters everywhere. And, and that's because we're doing visual signatures in the same way that, as you say, the symbolists and the surrealists did not so much. This is what it would look like if we also were robots. Right. Uh, we have another stream that is sort of in the middle of the spectrum, a uh, Gray Morrow or Everett Kinsler who are, uh, have those same, draftsmanship and classical influences, but the line is softer and there's a bit of an ash can uh, revival going on in space in mm -hmm. their uh, covers in the fifties and sixties. Uh, and then the final edge of that in that period is Kelly Frias, who was extremely prolific and he had his classical chops, but there's a lot of surrealism and also uh, whimsy and cartooning uh, in uh, what he's doing. And he had quite a long career. And so even into the seventies, the he's uh uh, still uh, working away there. And so I think there's a big shift that happens that kind of emphasizes the split, first of all, and then one thread of the split wins and the other dies off. And that's uh, with the actual space race itself and its visual impact on covers and illustrations, and also the impact of the films that were who had visual impact from the space race, uh, 2001 most notably, but also things like Silent Running, that changed the way that science fiction looked and then mirrored back into the imagery that appeared on covers for a long time. And of course, the, the sort of the dean of uh, hard SF spacecraft that looked like spacecraft, planets that looked like planets, nice hard lines to go with the hard SF would be uh, Vincent DeFate. Yeah. And this is where, uh, and DeFate carried that over, not just illustrating planets, but also his aliens are very almost anatomical, right? They're not the sort of big connection of, 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 of Jungian Ooga Booga that they often are that you, you think a defeat alien literally could walk off the page and do stuff uh, because he's coming. And I think you're, you're correct to say that it comes out of the, the space race and it comes out of the concept art that NASA was flooding America with in the sixties and early seventies. They, you know, took a ton of Chesley Bonestell art and lesser artists that were influenced by Bonestell. And that became sort of the default picture of space. And so you couldn't, get away with the sort of old 60s stuff. And also, Robin, coincidentally, color printing suddenly became easier and cheaper. Wild how that happened. Right. But at the same time, uh, there's another thing that happens in the 60s, along with uh, the space race, and that is uh, widespread recreational drug use. Yeah. Which brings us to the second stream of uh, science fiction illustration that goes into the 70s, and that's your prog rock album cover or your van art. And so that brings us to uh, Roger Dean, uh, to H.R. Giger, uh, back on uh, sort of the crossing, once again, the streams of horror and SF. And, uh, of course, 
Frank Frazetta, the uh, friend of uh, Van Airbrushers uh, everywhere in the 1970s. And, and, so, and living god of the pulp revival, because yes. he was able to go back to those very old traditions, the Margaret Brundage and even the Alex Schomburg era of, you know, jut-jawed heroes doing jut-jawed things. And under Frazetta's brush and airbrush, you bought it. And that was partially because Frank Frazetta was himself sort of a amazing pulp hero. If you've ever seen pictures of him, he looks like, you know, he's being played by Robert Mitchum or, you know, on a, on a better day, um, uh, Dean Martin. But he's got that sort of, you know, wavy hair and craggy uh, features. And then he's also, he's done it all. He's been a cowboy. He's done all these things that his characters, when he paints them, are also doing. I mean, he hasn't dominated Mars, uh, but you bet he could. You sent Frank Frazetta to Mars, the Martians would know what had hit him. Right. And you've also got some comics influence coming in, especially yeah. from France. So the, the Metal Herlong crew, or heavy metal as it turns into here, are also influencing that stream of things. And they're bringing in sort of a Robert E. Howard extreme satirical masculinity. It's satirical in their case, less so in Frazetta's. And then that feeds back into the comics era when you have Mike Grell and the artists of his school who, uh, again, because paper quality has gotten better, printing quality, you're, it's not all the blocky Kurt Swan lines now. You can actually get line detail. And that's when you begin to see sort of these, uh, I don't want to say more exuberant, but more lush character designs for uh, Wonder Woman and the Legion of Superheroes. And um, Green Arrow suddenly gets that curly beard. All of that happens, again, because you can draw it and it won't just look like mud on the page. And I think that Grell specifically, I think, has a lot of, you know, he's a continuity battery back and forth between those two not particularly disparate worlds. I also want to mention Chris Foss as the crossover between the hard tech and the trippy streams. Yep. He's like, what if we took hard tech but lit it like a drug trip? Exactly. <laughs> and, and so those those weird yellow uh, structures look like real structures, but you're, you're on something uh, while you're looking at them. But the thing that cuts off that stream and uh, ushers in the triumph of the tech manual art style is the rise of the movie concept artists and movie concept books, particularly Ralph McQuarrie's concept art for Star Wars, yeah. which is beguiling unto itself and intriguingly doesn't quite look like Star Wars. Yeah. And that ushered in a whole hunger for that sort of hard look of something that would look like it was in a movie. And then once speaking of uh, money and budgets and Marxism, mm -hmm. once gaming companies got enough money to print sophisticated art instead of orcs that looked like pigmen, suddenly the uh, necessity of having art that was like, you would point to this and go, this is what this looks like, uh, because that has a game function, of course, mm -hmm. to right. hand yeah. over to your players. And something that is sort of a montage or is more evocative or weird and trippy and flowy is not a direction that we've gone at all. And even yep. the artists who are more stylized uh, you know, uh, Jeff Darrow, who did the cover for Underground or what have you, are also within a hard line. This is what you're looking at sort of tradition. And it made me think, what would a space opera game be if we just took all the trippy covers and used that as the inspiration for the planets that you're on? So it's like this week we're going to the Roger Dean planet and mm -hmm. this week we're going to the planet drawn by this artist I can't identify on this ace double where there's sort of weird mushroom things and a swirl over there. What is that? Uh, what is that like? And how does that impact the mood and the characterization that we have 
uh, when we're uh, running a space opera game. Now, now, Robin, do you know if there's a, a book that uh, that covers this? Because that, of course, would be the generator for this space opera game, is if you have a book of SF paperback covers from 1950 to 1980, uh, and then you just roll the dice, randomly pick a page, randomly pick an illustration on the cover, bang. I know there's a number of illustrated histories of science fiction, but as you suggest, they all suddenly become movie stills. Is, is there something specific that we can point people to, or is this a, a, a scavenger hunt for the children? Uh, yeah, I, I don't have a recommendation. And of course, there are pulp art sites on on the web that uh, are starting to uncover what is still, I think, largely an un, unexplored area. And so you might have to, you know, create your randomized deck when it might be JPEGs rather than a mm-hmm. book where you would flip to a page. All right. Well, um, given that we've given everyone homework and have uh, once more reinforced Marxism as the only way to talk about the history of art, uh, we've surely done as much damage as we can to the cultural hut, the uh, the the people are staring at us in in horror as we emerge from the basement. Uh, not just because we've possibly been smoking up some Kelly Frias paintings, but uh, I think it's time that we move into the smooth, beautiful world of Adam Smith's commercials, and then into another hut. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research, God help them. That's Impossible Landscapes and its companion Static Protocol, both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of Arcdream Publishing. Tom wants more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs where awaits the consulting occultist in his smoking jacket. And he is a lovingly uh, turning over a missive from estimable Patreon backer P.O. O'Neill, who uh, says, I've recently discovered that there was a theosophist only retirement community created in California in the 1960s. Help me understand what this could possibly mean. I want to first thank P. O'Neill. Um, as you say, very beloved. Uh, just as uh, Joe Webb provided us with the uh, 101 on the two uh, subjects, P. O'Neill has provided me with a lengthy research paper, and I legitimately only had to go to like two other pages while consulting my occult works for this piece. So uh, what P. O'Neill found us is a essay by uh, residents of the Tower Mina Retirement Community uh, in Ojai, California, 
uh, called Taormina's Historic Past. And yeah, because usually local histories are like, oh, and this person was the alderman, and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, here's our theosophist community we had. Yep. And it's the same thing, just with theosophy energy, which, you know, we've said before, theosophy is the, you know, um, uh, applesauce of, of mysticism. It's uh, sloppy and sweet and doesn't really fill you up. But here it is, building communities. A fellow named A.P. Warrington, the general secretary and head of the esoteric section of the Theosophical Society, brief sigh, wishing that that was actually cool, uh, sets up uh, something that he calls the Crotona Study Center, which is a farm and a Pythagorean commune, in addition to being a study center, in Beechwood Canyon, above Hollywood. It's basically where the Hollywood sign is uh, in 1912. And uh, they set it up, and they build uh, a bunch of big, insane, pseudo-Moorish buildings, some of which become hotels as the uh, Hollywood crowd moves up the canyons. Right. And, and this is very early on in L.A. being the epicenter of... Uh, mystical and cultic uh, weirdness yeah. uh, throughout the continent. People go to LA to be weird, and then the weird emanates out of LA. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's this is like the the theosophists are like the either the late first or the early second wave of of that craziness going to LA. But as I mentioned, Hollywood people begin to show up and wreck the vibe. Uh, Charlie Chaplin lives in the uh, Cretona uh, Hotel for a while. It's weird and messed up. So the theosophists upstakes. Uh, Crotona, by the way, is named for uh, the city of Croton in Italy, where uh, Pythagoras was invited uh, to run the place according to Pythagorean principles. And then they uh, upstakes uh, our theosophists and they move Crotona to Ojai, California, which is in Ventura County to the northwest. And it's up in some mountains. They will tell you, the theosophists, that Ojai means nest. They are wrong. It means moon in Chumash. But anyway, they go to Ojai. And Annie Besant, who is the sort of a new queen of theosophy, the empress, the godmother, the new Blavatsky, has visions in Ojai and uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti, the the great, uh, what do I want to say, um, Masaduan of uh, Hinduism and Christianity and Buddhism uh, teacher. Turned out to be better at the job than uh, Adina Sackville's brother would have been. Absolutely. Krishnamurti also teaches in Ojai. So there's a Krishnamurti school there. They start turning Ojai into a California of California, where if you're too loopy to even get by in Hollywood, you can flood up to Ojai and get your chakras balanced. Um, she envisions a great plan, apparently, either uh, at the time or people have gone and put envisions into her visions later. But the great plan says that there should be a retirement center up here for old theosophists to be able to commune and and uh, keep their magnetic energy flowing correctly. It's it's nice the secret masters to like look into like logistics and healthcare and stuff. Yeah, it's I mean, very th- earthly of them. This is what happens when you turn uh, your mystical sect over to a hard charging upper middle class British lady. Um, she starts organizing you, and then if you only recruit from middle class Americans, guess what? They start signing forms. So, uh, in 1949, a recent Theosophist uh, recruit named Ruth Wilson has a literal dream about a retirement community for theosophists. No doubt the secret masters were tired of Annie Besant not doing it, and they got Ruth Wilson to agitate for it. The Theosophical Convention votes to establish one in 1958. So this is this is literally taking as long as every other housing development thought of by uh, people without a ton of money. 
Right. Um, well, it, it takes place at the time scale of the Secret Masters. It's just exactly. a blink of their eyes. It's a blink of their eyes. The Akashic Record uh, then finally gets around to uh, complying with California state law, uh, which does not let them set up Theosophical Retirement Community, Inc., which is what they wanted to call it. They're like, you can't call it that. And so they call it the Taormina community, which is named for the town in Sicily that Pythagoras fled to after the people of Croton rebelled against him and threw him out because they hated (laughs) being run by vegetarian weirdos. Well, there's always someone weirder than you to come and take over your commune and throw you out of it. With no sense of irony whatsoever, they call their retirement community Taormina, uh, and it's basically across the road from the Crotona Center. They plant 600 trees around a half-mile oval street because uh, Ruth Wilson's vision was that there were trees there. The land didn't have any trees on it. They said, well, we can fix that. She fell in love with the French Norman house belonging to the owner of the Libby Glass Company who had retired out to Ojai. And so she said, French Norman will be the style of the community. They got a, a complacent Harrisburg, Pennsylvania architect named L. Vern Lacey to design uh, the buildings, all the various types that you could buy. And then by 1967, by the way, there's been a number of theosophists who've been waiting for their retirement community in this case for like a, a dozen years. They're not getting any younger. So uh, they, they slap up the buildings um, as rapidly as they can. They seem nice on online. Many of them are still standing, which is good. In 1980, according to the PDF, there was a big discussion to build a gazebo and it immediately turned into a place for malcontents and whiners. So the organization uh, shut down the gazebo over and over again. The gazebo was the whiner zone. The, it was the whiner zone. I wasn't sure in your notes whether they were whining about or in the gazebo. So now I know. They were whining in the gazebo about the people who ran Terramina. And indeed, in 1983, one of the people who lived in Terramina, whose uh, parents had retired there and they inherited the house, and they were told, well, you need to sell the house back to the theosophists because you're not a theosophist, nor are you old. And he said, I'll bet that's illegal. And he sued them. And indeed it was. That was what we called a restrictive covenant back in the day. So the 1983 lawsuit breaks the restrictive covenant. The head of uh, the of Termina community, a, a woman named Ruth Matthews, then takes all the common property and puts it into a separate LLC that is not controlled by the homeowners. That lasts until, believe it or not, 2005, when the homeowners realize that they've been paying dues and not seeing any accounting of where their dues money went. And they have a lawsuit that turns Terramina into a more normal homeowners association. Like for example, my homeowners association that I live in now. And in 2016 happy ending Terramina was named a historic district in Ohio. It's Ohio's first historic district. And it's still there. If you're in Ohio, you can sort of take so a, presumably that's going to like place limits on, you know, what you can do with the yeah, you can't, Norman housing. Right, you, you, you can't build housing that doesn't fit the aesthetic of Terramina. And Terramina is not actually that big. Like I say, it's just a ha- it's a single street. It goes in a half mile oval around the gazebo. The bitching and gazebo. all the houses are there. The bitching gazebo, which in 2013 was closed. I don't know if it's been reopened. I hope so, because you need a bitching gazebo, I feel. So um, I'm looking at this info dump reading it with a combination of delight and middle-class horror and i realized that the secret campaign that possibly p o'neill has intended all along is the one that takes place in the 1970s and uh i've mentioned dictatorial backstabbing ruthless channeler ruth matthews who is also a glad hander who invites all manner of loose ends to wind up 
in Taromina, including a Ponca Indian artist named Fireshaker and a Tibetan refugee family, both of which settle in Taromina in the 1970s, despite not being retired. And the uh, guy who retires there in 1975 is a fellow named Bill Loudon, who was the secretary to the L.A. County Sheriff from 1947 to 1973, and a Gnostic scholar. And so Bill Loudon, who I guess was also a theosophist in addition to his other time constraints, shows up. And now what we've got, we've got a former cop, you've got a Ponca Indian artist and visionary, you've got Tibetans, you've got any number of other retirees, and Ruth Matthews was a former commercial pilot, so she has a degree of real-world uh, skill and uh, noose as well. And what I'm seeing here, Robin, is a sort of cocoon Bubba Hotep sort of a scenario where you're playing elderly theosophists who have retired to Taormina in the 1970s, and you're just there uh, hoping they'll build a gazebo someday and watering your yard and saying hi to the neighbors and doing all your stuff. You can't barbecue, by the way, that's illegal. Uh, Taormina is meant to be a vegetarian commune. They abandoned that in the 50s when they realized there were no vegetarians with money. Um, but they <laughs> they still said you can't barbecue because having roasting animal flesh wafting across the Theosophical Study Center is a bit of a poke in the eye. But other than that, they're a perfectly normal 70s elderly community. And because they are attuned to the mystic, when genuine bad monsters show up, they're the people who have to deal with it. Everyone else is, of course, a granola-crunching, useless hippie. So you are the people in Terramina who are actually capable of dealing with something. And so that's the scenario. that, that You've got a, a, a cool 70s old people versus monsters from the id kind of a vibe. I think it could be very strong, Robin. What do you think? Right. And of course, always the trick with theosophists, especially if they're going to be the player characters, is... You can't prove theosophy right because <laughs> uh, it's super racist. So yeah. you have to find a way around that. So you uh, uh, need to have them discover that the root race of uh, nonsense that uh, Madame Blavatsky passed on to them is uh, is not actually what's going on. And, of course, if you have uh, players who respond to depictions of uh, historical racism uh, as they would to uh, actual racism. Now, that's this is not going to be their cup of tea. So yes, you may want to signpost that, that before you even get started. Although I will say that the, the uh, regardless of its origins, um, not regardless, but despite its origins, Terramina was very welcoming to non-white residents and settlers. There was the restrictive covenant just said you had to be a theosophist. Now, does that mean there was a lot of black theosophists? I'll bet there wasn't. But as you can tell, there was Tibetan and Ponca Indian theosophists, so it's not all white guys, even in 1975. So you have some of that to push back on already before you realize that the secret masters are actually uh, Nazi force ghosts or whatever you've decided. And to tie it back to the secret masters, Annie Besant and her sidekick C.W. Ledbetter had a revelation of the secret masters that the sixth root race the one that will replace the the human race, the Aryan root race, if you want to put a pin on it. <laughs> if you want to remind us. <laughs> if you want to remind us where this horrible thing comes from, that the sixth root race will be nurtured in the Ojai Valley. And that is why you see people saying Ojai means nest. It's because they're part of a theosophist op that they're uh, that they say that. So that's the thing that's happening in 1975. The Nazi force ghosts have all come back. 
and pre-Nazi racist force ghosts have all come back. The egg is cracking in Ojai. The sixth root race is coming out. And of course, it's horrible and demonic and monstrous because it's a theosophical root race and they're all terrible. And that's what you have to deal with. You have to stop it, but without blowing up the community and, and sending all of your neighbors into a tizzy and possibly a series of cardiac events right. as you learn that the secret masters are in fact bad, horrible demon uh, force ghosts. And you right. don't like which, that. Which should come as no surprise to our Gnostic scholar. Right. He, yes. He's got the, the uh, theological groundwork laid right. to transition the community into something <laughs> yes. uh, less force. Or, or at least the player character group. And then, and, and the, the notion that his Gnostic scholarship has led him to Ojai has led him to retire there is maybe the inciting incident that uh, Bill Loudon is the guy who knows something's up and he is the guy who shows up and begins to assemble this uh, team and they start fighting, you know, tulpas and UFO hypnotists and other stuff from the seventies. And then that's when you crack open the, the egg of the sixth root race and say, Oh, and now the Nazi force ghosts are coming and no one likes that. I so much don't like that, that I'm going to flee. I'm just going to head <laughs> right gonna, over to this. You're not even going to stay in Taramina. You're going to sell your retirement yeah. house and, and move. That's sensible. But, but I'll be back next week, Ken, along with you for uh, more similar nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stave off this podcast's early retirement by leaguing with such kindly backers as... Alan Wilkins. Dave Stecco. Scott Stefanski. Jack Ulick. And Michael Curtis. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Put on your best faces with our latest design. Ready for my close-up, Mr. Pickman. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>